is correct. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Coffin, and welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. Today, we'll be discussing a comedic world that is as iconic as it is difficult to pigeonhole, the endlessly quotable, endlessly influential, endlessly irreverent work that is one of the United Kingdom's finest cultural exports, Monty Python. A little more than 50 years ago, the BBC began airing Monty Python's Flying Circus, a surreal sketch comedy show written by and starring Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, and Terry Gilliam. The show came at its audience with a powerful mix of absurdity, subversion, and perplexity, lacing lowbrow physical humor with fiendishly clever wit and treating us to the occasional musical number along the way. It was a show unlike any other and became a huge hit after only a few short seasons. Feature films soon followed, as well as books, albums, and live performances. Some of them, such as Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Monty Python's The Life of Brian, became instant classics, adding to a robust catalog of segments that have since become quoted ad infinitum by fans all over the world. The influence of the Pythons is impossible to overstate. An entire generation of comedians have cited them as a major influence, and much of the best comedy in the last few decades either walks within sight of the ground that the Pythons broke, or it trades on subject matter surfaced by one trained to look at the world as only the Pythons could. In many ways, this is now the Pythons world, and we are all just laughing at it. Monty Python has been a pretty big influence in my life, both in how I view humor and in how I view the sanctity of things that maybe don't deserve to be quite so sanctified. But more than anything, Monty Python is something that brings people together with a powerful shared experience and a secret language of comedic references. At least it does for the half of humanity that loves this stuff. To the other half that simply has no use for Monty Python or who find it annoying every time one of us say, nee, or sing the Lumberjack song or describe something as way far thin. Well, I got nothing for you this time. Sorry. With me today is Holy Hand Grenadier, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. <laughs> People's Front of Judea spokesperson, Joe Pace. Good evening. And Crimson Permanent Assurance Company CFO, Tom Hespos. Hello, hello. Everyone, welcome. So I think a good place to begin here is at the beginning with Monty Python's sketch comedy. It's where it all got started, and it's kind of remained sort of the central point of, of how they do their thing. And that kind of brings us to Tom's moment of the truth. So Tom, why don't you let us have it? Sure. So... Oh, you know, I thought long and hard about this, especially, you know, given my love for the Holy Grail and the life of all of it. I mean, I, I just adore all of it. And what I came up with was the four Yorkshiremen skit. It's just unbelievable. I, I love everything about it. And it's only three and a half, maybe four minutes long. You know this skit. I mean, it, you, got, you have four tuxedoed men. They're sitting in a fancy club drinking fancy wine. And they all start reminiscing about the days when they were poor. And they're trying to one-up one another with their poverty stories. And they, they start out fairly reasonable, but it just quickly gets, you know, that Monty Python absurd, over-the-line absurd. And it's passing from one of these guys to the next, the stories. It just it gets more and more real ridiculous with what each man is trying to pass off. Eventually, they just end it on a, you try to tell young people of today and they, <laughs> today that, and they won't believe you. And... Of course, you can't believe them because the stories that they've told have literally required them to go back in time in order to be true. So, you know, why do I think that this is a moment of truth for Monty Python? The first is the, the masterful delivery of all of it that I, I want to get into in a second. But the second is that this thing just builds on a lot of things that are truly universal in comedy and, and, and in life. I mean, everybody's gotten that story from dad or from granddad or whoever about, uh, you know, walking to school uphill both ways in the snow. Like everybody's had that. Boasting, of course, is just like a, a thing since time immemorial. So they took something that was as culturally as close to universal as you're going to get. And they just turned it into this nice, clean fun. And, and you know, clean fun, I mean, like, you can watch this sketch with your kids. <laughs> you can watch it with your parents. You can watch it with your kids and your parents. Nobody's going to get embarrassed. You know, it's just nice, good, clean fun. Again, I, I want to get back to the delivery on this thing because I had my own sort of moment of truth just researching the history of this sketch. Everybody's heard of the aristocrats, right? So, you know, they made a documentary about it. It's this history of like a really filthy joke that's not really a joke. The, the joke is on the person 
that you're telling it to because you're stringing them along and you're keeping them engaged, et cetera, et cetera. The variations on it are limitless, but they all really stick to the same theme and punchline. So the joke becomes this yardstick by which comedians are going to measure their respective chops. So the more outlandish you can make the joke without losing the audience, the better you are. So I went around looking for the version of the four Yorkshiremen sketch that I knew from, you know, when I was introduced to it. And I didn't find it. But in my YouTube searches, I, I did find a lot of different versions. I found versions of the script. And the first version of it had completely different pythons in it. The most, you know, official one, if you will, like had John Cleese and it had Graham Chapman in it. And it turns out that they wrote it long before Monty Python with at last the 1948 show, which was when this thing first aired with two other people I'd never heard of. And then they brought that into Monty Python. You know, when you start looking through all the search results of all the different videos they have of this thing, you start seeing versions with Eric Idle and Michael Palin and like all these different pythons like rotating in and out. And then, you know, you do the YouTube search without Monty Python in it and you get this wonderful set of results back with all these other comedians who are doing it. I saw one that was super funny with Eddie Izzard and Alan Rickman in it, of all people. You start to see this huge range of comedians uh, doing this sketch. And in every one of them, the script is the same. There are minor differences here and there, but it never really deviates enough from the original for it to be significant. And you begin to realize that this is kind of like the clean British comedy version of the aristocrats joke. And what it's measuring is the delivery. You have to listen to what really gets a laugh in the skits. It's like these little transitions in between stories. When Graham Chapman says luxury, one of his buddies is finished up and he's about to one up. That gets a huge laugh. It's one of the biggest laughs like you hear in the whole thing. Yeah, so good. I started to look at that and I looked at all the other people who had recorded versions of this skit. I said to myself, this is almost like the British comedy version of the aristocrats. It is a yardstick because it's functioned that way. I think it's a moment of truth. <laughs> yeah. First of all, I, I didn't know that this particular sketch had kind of broken out from beyond the pythons that had become bigger than the group itself. I didn't know either. <laughs> that's really kind of cool. That That's like legacies type stuff. I mean, it's one thing for your work to be beloved over a really long period of time for people to endlessly quote it. But when you do something that kind of gets beyond your original iteration and people sort of take it as a thing greater than itself, that's a real compliment. So I didn't know it had become that, which is really kind of cool. But you know, the other thing about this particular sketch, and it is so funny, I watched it again when you mentioned it, and the transitions are so great. It's these guys are kind of pairing and fainting off of each other, and they have come up with some justification for coming up with their crazier story, and just faux nonchalance about it. It's just so good. <laughs> but unlike the aristocrats, four Yorkshiremen as a group effort, right? It's kind of like whose line is it anyway? You have to be yeah. able to read not just the audience, but read your fellow comedians and be able to kind of go off of them. This story is a linear progression, right? You can't go back. You can't be the weak guy. So you have to constantly make it stronger, but you have to create something that, you know, can somehow be topped as well. It's also a test of your group dynamic thing, which is interesting because that's where so much of the virtuosity of the Pythons comes out, which is they work so well as a group. I mean, there are these really unique individuals who came together in a very specific compound. Each of them have done wonderful things on their own and are really funny people on their own. But as the Pythons coming together, now for something completely different, right? And yeah, so that poor Yorkshire is, is a great sketch because it really does exemplify what is perhaps their greatest strength, which is that they come together and become a whole that is so much greater than the sum of its parts. It's really good stuff. What I love about Tom's moment of truth here in regards to the, you know, the sketch comedy origins uh, of, of the troupe is that they didn't invent improv comedy. They didn't invent sketch comedy. I mean, they, they draw from vaudeville. They draw from a lot of comedic traditions going back to the Three Stooges or Abbott Costello and a lot of other things. But they had a way of combining, and I think you, you alluded to this in your open, which is the combinations of that improv comedy with satire, this sense of we are going to pillory anyone and anything. And this was at a time when you, you were just starting to get counterculture aspects of comedy. There's a tradition that came out of the 60s of comedy as a weapon of speaking to power and speaking truths that you you could say with a laugh, you couldn't say with a straight face. The Pythons 
pioneered so much of that in Britain. And we don't think about them as being socio-political, but they were deeply political, right? I mean, these these guys were were hammering away at the at the political establishment. They were extremely political, in fact. Extremely so, yeah. And you know, we think about what came later, obviously, like Second City and SNL and everything else that came after that followed in the footsteps of and then expanded upon what the Pythons really pioneered. That satire and what I what I love most about the Pythons is that you're invited to participate in it as an audience member. When we think about improv comedy and we think about the, what Bill, what you were talking about, whose line is it anyway, or, or the theater sports, you're essentially inviting the audience to be a participant in the troupe. And the Pythons would do that sometimes by virtue of alluding to something that everybody had a common experience with or by an aside to the audience, an aside that sort of broke that fourth wall. They did that sort of earlier than anybody else. You know, we laugh when Deadpool does it now, but these guys did it. Uh, all the time. And you mentioned Graham Chapman and the Four Yorkshiremen. When he says luxury, it's as much to us as it is to the guys he's in the sketch with and invites us to both laugh and be a, a participant. You know, when I thought about this moment of truth, and I think about what it means to just the Monty Python sort of catalog in general, I couldn't help but just sort of go back and think of some of my favorite pieces of their sketch comedy catalog. And I just have to ask, I mean, guys, Tom's already pointed out the Four Yorkshiremen. What is perhaps one of your favorite Monty Python sketches and why do you love it so much? Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. I don't even know how to dissect how brilliant it is. Yeah. <laughs> the absurdity so good. of it, of course, is all that, that's part of Python. The yeah. irreverence, which is which I'm going to come back to, is clear. But the performances too, it's just four minute slice of genius. <laughs> well, one of the things about that particular sketch that I just love so much. There's a moment when you're watching and you think Michael Palin's actually flooding his line, but it's not. It's the character flooding his line. And he actually delivers a character flooding his line so well, but he's in total mastery. And, and you see that in a bunch of other sketches as well. There's a bunch of them that I love, the cheese shop sketch, right? Where, which is so great because, you know, John Cleese goes into a cheese shop. He just wants to buy some cheese and he goes through this endless list of different kinds of cheese he could buy and they're all out of. And you're watching it and... Cleese is just listing 90% of all the cheese that's manufactured on planet Earth and does it without a stop, a stammer, without a pause. He's just so fluent. And that's how they were with the sketch comedy. They were so on point. It's really astonishing to watch. And, and you look at other kind of sketch comedy, it's a lot of fun and quite enjoyable. Oftentimes you see characters and they break up or they just can't get the delivery just right. But you got the sense with the Pythons, I mean, they just, they're so good at their craft. They just sort of seem to blow right past that, which is really impressive given things often started with a, a heavy, absurd take, but then they went somewhere else. And there's a lot of brain power going on there in these sketches, you know? A lot of joy too. They're just exuberant. They're so yeah. clearly having such a good time. If you ever watched Live at the Hollywood Bowl, that's the only place you'll ever maybe see them crack up a little bit, maybe. But they're just having such a good time doing this stuff. It's yeah, infectious. Yeah. Joe, do you have a favorite sketch? It's... Yeah, I couldn't do the voice. I tried to do it's, but it wasn't... It's. Well, this is like I was picking second in the draft, and the number one pick is already off the board for the Spanish Inquisition. But, but for me, the one that I had to enjoy the most, and it got referred to earlier, was the Lumberjacks. My father, for 40 years, owned his own tree service company. And so I grew up... <laughs> I grew up doing uh, tree work, uh, you know, pulling brush, cutting trees, chipping branches, the whole bit. Putting on high heels. <laughs> hey, listen, I was a lumberjack and I, I was okay, you know, and, but what I love most about that sketch, aside from the fact my father would sing it, right, because we'd enjoy it together. He enjoyed it on the level of the first blush of the lyrics of like, you know, he's lumberjack and he's okay, you know, but he, he never seemed to get to the second part. It pivots immediately into that absurdist take, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden it's talking about the guy's a cross-dresser and that's still okay you know it's 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 fine whatever and there's this heavily classist component to 1960s england right and the pythons are leaning heavily into that they're leaning heavily into a lot of that middle class old world erosion of england right these were guys who were as much as the Beatles, the voice of what was going on in England in the 1960s, right? Which is, yeah, England used to be pretty awesome and now we're just kind of in retirement and we, we still think of ourselves as this super civilized, but they, they lampoon that, that identity of England constantly. And so lampooning identities is such a key component. And that's the whole Lumberjack song to me is the lampooning of an identity. You take something that 
should be really simple to understand on the surface and you've turned it inside out. The other song that my father used to love to sing was the REM song about losing your religion. And he didn't know what that meant either. Uh, <laughs> and when we finally explained to him that it was about masturbation, he stopped singing it. Uh, but uh, Shout out to all the clueless dads in the world. Yeah, now, now, that I, now that I am one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't want to know about the music my kids listen to. But I think for me, the Lumberjack song is important because it was something we sang all the time in, in my house growing up, but also because it, it spoke to that identity component that the, the Pythons so skillfully just poked at constantly. You know, when I was growing up, when I was in high school in particular, when you know, you're in that awkward phase where you just want to prove to your smart friends that you're as smart as they are and all that, and how much you dug Python was kind of seen as a, as a yardstick for, you know, how, you know, how long that path you really were, you know, so. That, That's a key currency, yeah. It, yeah, it was a key currency, and it was almost like being able to recreate the four Yorksmen thing was almost like freestyle rap battle. I mean, you were just there, and people just try to quote it back, you know, and. And if you couldn't come up the line, you had to do it on your own. People would like, okay, I see how well it goes, you know. Python was funny Doctor Who. I mean, it was yeah, you know, yeah. PBS. But, but um, <laughs> that's where I found yes. it was on PBS. Yeah. And PBS really was like where Python broke free in, in America. And it just was just a huge hit for PBS. But for, for me, the skits that really knocked me out, I think, were the ones, I mean, there's so many great ones that are just language-based, like the Argument Clinic, you know, and, and you know, Nudge Nudge and, and Dead Parrot. Um, which are all just, I mean, they're all so fantastic, but I do love the ones that are a little bit more physical in nature, just because they get such a guffaw out of me. Upper class twit of the year just makes me howl. This, you know, this, where Michael Palin points forward in his car, then blasts it in reverse. And just, there's always something else to it. They're just totally making fun of this particular strata of English society that is a little too finely groomed to be useful, a little too inbred to be trusted, you know, it just, yeah, just a little too goofy to, to be really relied upon. And I saw the funniest joke in the world again today, which just makes me just laugh so hard, especially when they, they turn it around and, and use it as a way to make fun of Germany in, in general. Like, like the German version of the joke is just such a horrible joke. Like that's the pinnacle of German humor, you know? It's just like, it's, it's, just, it's so great. But honestly, I think my favorite sketch, the one that I always keep coming back to is the Ministry of Silly Walks, which is probably one of the most visual of all their skits. And it just starts, of course, with John Cleese walking like a complete weirdo across the street. And it's just... He keeps shaking it up so infrequently that you just keep laughing at it, but you don't know what you're laughing at. Like, what's the point of this whole thing? Is this going to be three minutes of him just walking around? And it's when he walks inside and there's this other guy just casually passes him in the hall doing another silly walk, right? And you realize there's like a whole cadre of people walking like this just just to justify the existence of this, this ministry, right? And then you get in the conversation where he's talking to this guy who's he's looking for a grant to fund his silly walk. The way that conversation plays out, and of course, Cleesis gets up and keeps walking around the room for no other reason than to exhibit one more silly walk. But he's just going off, and it's just this great skewer of bureaucracy, which is another thing. They, you know, they were very distrustful of authority, really couldn't stand bureaucracy. And this sort of is a great broadside. And one of the great things about it is is that as he's talking, like you listen to – because this is like one of those skits that was filmed in front of a live audience as well, right? So – He's talking and there's just all this hilarity and there's a line he drops that you almost miss it because people were laughing so loudly over it. And he mentions how, how they had to be careful with their money because they had a budget cut back this year. They're only down to like 330 million pounds for the year or something. And that's like 330, like 1970 pounds. It's like a billion dollars. <laughs> it just, it just says it's so nonchalantly. And it's like, how many silly walks are they funding here? <laughs> You know, what's the cost of fun one? And it just it really throws you down this quick, you know, rabbit hole that's like so apart from from the sketch, you know, which is which is great. But that sketch, like so many of the others, one thing that's kind of amazing, we sort of forget about it, is that these sketches were short for as classic and as awesome as they were, they were almost all three minutes or shorter. I mean, they were really brief, a real testament how tight, you know, the sketches were. And in part, the sketches were so short because they had trouble with writing decent endings. Uh, and didn't care for writing decent endings. And as a result, the sort of adopted into their whole thing, they would do stories and just end them without ending them. They would either have something would just come and blast through, or they would just move on to another topic, or some character would come in, declare the sketches silly, and move on, that sort of thing, and which is, which is humor unto itself. But a lot of it involved that breaking of the fourth wall that, Joe, you mentioned, which is really, really funny. And that kind of brings us to your moment of truth. So I'd love to hear, hear you, you know, share about what what is, uh, what's your Monty Python moment of, moment of truth? Yeah, it speaks very much to that. And we're going to leave the world of the sketch comedy behind and go into the films. And it's funny, you talk about the inability to sustain a narrative for the, uh, for the sketches, but for the films, 
they managed to not sustain a narrative for an hour and 45 minutes. Quest for the Holy Grail is only loosely uh, a narrative arc at all. And it takes the familiar story, obviously, of Arthur and his quest for, <laughs> his quest for the cup that caught the blood of Christ. And is really just makes that a canvas for having all kinds of fun with costumes and medieval politics and everything else. And Graham Chapman, to me, in the role of King Arthur, is the best straight man that's ever been ever in anything. He plays it completely straight 99% of the time as if he completely believes everything that's happening. He, he is King Arthur. He's on a serious, legitimate quest, and there is no comedy to him. He does not think anything is funny. He is oh, yeah. <laughs> he's doing the Arthurian thing. And even to the point of Patsy behind him with the coconuts as the horse, this does not, <laughs> just does not bother him. He does not strike him as absurd. <laughs> there is no absurdity to it. And so he then becomes the vehicle <laughs> that, upon which all the rest of the absurdity gets packed into. And what's great is that all of the other Knights of the Round Table come along for that ride. I mean, Khaleesi's, <laughs> I could go on all day when it comes to this one, but the Knights all take themselves completely seriously and are the subject of the humor. And it's the peasants and the, the other characters that see the, the silliness in all of it. But my favorite moment is one where Chapman's Arthur breaks that. This is when John Cleese is giving the, he's Tim the Enchanter, and he's describing to them the monster that they're going to encounter. And we all know the monster is the rabbit. And he says, you know, where death awaits you with horrible pointy teeth. And he does the teeth, right? And Graham Chapman turns. I don't know if he turns to Patsy or if he turns to us in the audience and says, what an eccentric performance. And <laughs> it's the one moment in the entire movie where <laughs> Graham Chapman is kind of like, is this real or am I kind of being put on here? The whole thing is full of eccentric performances, right? And it's goofy and it's, and it's dumb and it's sophomoric, and it's, but it's absolutely perfect. And I, I love that moment by my favorite Arthurian character in my favorite Arthurian movie. <laughs> yeah, right. My favorite Python uh, character in, the, in my favorite Python movie. And it's just, it's absolutely perfect. You, know, you said something great about how Graham Chapman is the greatest straight man that ever lived. And, and John Cleese very much felt the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it's, I think I've read that one of the reasons why Mighty Python kind of broke up when it did is because when Graham Chapman died, yeah. Cleese very much felt like without that straight man to kind of bounce things off of, the, the whole absurdity really sort of, you know, spun out of control. And Chapman, when you stop to look at him, there's so much craziness going on around him it's easy to overlook just how good a straight man he really is. And it's kind of perhaps the most understated part of the whole Python effect is just watching Chapman not do anything to add to it, but just to be that normalcy that makes all the other lunacy stand out in such bright relief. You the know? only time that Chapman would let loose was when he was in drag. And that's when he would not be the straight man. He would be the, <laughs> the, some woman, the shrewish English housewife or whatever else. Yeah, there's actually a name for that particular archetype too. It's like the old, the old nag or yeah, something like that, like the old exactly. bag lady or something. And yeah, he was great at that. Terry Jones, in particular, was an inspired actor in drag. He just had that crazy, like, like, loud, like, no, that, yeah, that loud screech. He would just, just roll into, like, he lived in it, <laughs> and it was just so, it was. <laughs> It was so good. <laughs> like, man, it's just, it's just, so, it's just so funny, and you can just hear it. It can't be imitated, but it's just, it's such a, a sonic <laughs> trademark of all, all Python is all those guys jumping into their in their drag voices, and it's just Eric Idle would do a more feminine drag, and Palin would do would do the more screechy hag, and it's really kind of funny how they oh, yeah. they all chose like subclasses of drag to perform. <laughs> when Robin Williams does Mrs. Doubtfire, he is paying deep homage to Terry Jones's drag. It is a, a oh yeah, oh for sure. We got to this because you're talking about breaking the fourth wall, it's just the non sequitur kind of aspect of these things, and one of the the ways in which <laughs> It breaks a fourth wall, but also breaks another fourth wall within the movie where it's one of my favorite comedic bits of all time, which is when the medieval scholars are talking and he's expecting all of a sudden this knight just rides by and just takes him out without warning. He just gets cut down. Remember as I first watched it as a kid, I was like, wait a minute, what just happened? They don't leave it alone. Right? And then, a knight with an actual yeah, horse. An actual horse. Like an actual <laughs> cavalryman. That movie had no budget. You know how much money they had to spend to get a guy on horse to cut this guy down just as one gag? And then they don't explain it. And like, wait a minute. They don't walk away and from it keep, either. They keep coming. They, they yeah, turn it into they keep cutting. A, a, a C line in the thing with the police yeah. come and the coroner and the guy's yeah. wife. And, and, 
Yeah, and, and yeah, and it's like you keep coming back to this this CSI, you know, Yorkshire or whatever, where it's like they they figure out who killed the medievalist, and of course it ends with the whole movie ending with just everybody just gets busted, like the big battle about to happen, like no, 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 we end this because they're all going to jail. It's like that is the most Python wall breaking thing ever. There are other. Yeah. They didn't have end it. And they didn't end it, so we're just gonna, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everybody gets arrested. <laughs> exactly, but but you see other things like that where I think what's really cool is when they do that, not just to end things. I mean, sometimes it's to end things, but sometimes it's also just to sort of give the narrative just a, a quick jog. I forget in which movie it was, but you know, they simply announced that the animator had a heart attack. That's and died. the same Holy Grail, been- yeah. It's how it saves him from the monster of ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And you see Terry Gilliam keel over his desk and he's gone. Well, so much for that, you know. He didn't take the time to chisel out ah as he was dying. <laughs> exactly. There's there's something similar to that also in The Meaning of Life when you have the Crimson Permanent Assurance opening film of these old accountants who become literal corporate pirates and they're building just unmoors and start sailing around Wall Street and they just cart, you know jump into the boardrooms and kill everybody, take things over. It's this opening thing at the beginning of the movie and then Meaning of Life goes on. And which is like a sketch comedy movie. And then in the middle of it, the Crimson Permanent Assurance come in and attack another skit all of a sudden. And you're like, wait, wait, hold on, what? And then, and then the movie stops and actually pulls its own thing where it just crushes the Crimson Permanent Assurance by just dropping a skyscraper on them just so they can get the movie back on track. They derailed their own movie just to put it back on track. And like, that's just how free they were with narrative structure and speaking directly to the audience. And nobody has ever done it quite like that before or since. And it's a really unique thing about their work. And I just I just love it. So like when when Graham turns around, he's like, you know what eccentric performance. I very much feel that's aimed at the audience, even though it's aimed at Patsy. I feel like very much I'm being talked to because I expect to be talked to right. by the Pythons. I expect them to give me sidelong glances. I know this is your podcast, but I, but I want to hear from the other guys because we're not leaving the Holy Grail until I hear favorite moments out of the Holy Grail. You can be cut it later or whatever. I don't care, but I, I, want, I want to hear those because I want to keep talking about the Holy Grail because it's one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite things of all time. But I want to hear from the other guys what your favorite moments are. Well, Tom, go for it. So I had this 10th grade English teacher who, you know, he was kind of like from uh, Dead Poets Society, you know really great teacher he showed the holy grail this is my first exposure to monty python he showed the holy grail over three class episodes as we were leading up to the christmas break he was one of these like serious guys too you know who uh, stopped to tell us that the joke about Knigget's is a real thing. And he said the whole thing was gag, trying to convince us that there's so many levels to the humor in this. He, he said to us, like, the Knigget's is, you know, a joke on the lack of silent letters in Middle English, you know, as expressed by the French. And like in the middle of a 10th grade English class. And I mean, that that's what set me down the road of, all right, I love this movie, but yeah, there are a bunch of little things going on like below the surface that I may or may not get. Subsequently, I get them, you know, future retellings, you know, and you watch the movie again, you notice something almost every single time that you missed in the first few go-arounds. It's great. Yeah, what it really tells you is, and this is something you see this, when you the more python you watch it's easy to get distracted or just entertained superficially by just the goofiness and the absurdity or the physical humor but the more you look at how these things play out you realize that you know unlike there are other movies or shows or whatever that have a, you know they trade in absurdity and they trade in goofy you know kind of weird sort of madcap type stuff and that's as far as the writing goes but with with python you can tell that they really went deep just to get themselves that shallow which is kind of strange but that they did they started at the bottom of the ocean to get up to the surface and as a result when you get these funny jokes you realize afterwards that there's a lot more to it than you thought. And they, they took a pretty rich way to get there. And I think that helps explain why the humor stands up so well over time. And also why it is still so rewarding when you go back to it again and again and again. It doesn't wear out its welcome nearly as fast as you imagine 50-year-old comedy would. But you no, know, it doesn't. Chris, your favorite part in Holy Grail. I, I want to pause and, and say something about uh, the way the show, or well, the way the Python was written. Basically, there were two working pairs, Chapman and Cleese and Jones and Palin. And then Gillum was off doing the animation. So they, they clearly wrote for each other all the time, but the, the writing styles were, you can see throughout Python who wrote what to a large degree. I love the scene at the beginning or close to the beginning where uh, Palin and uh, Jones are peasants being oppressed by King Arthur. That, that, I, I just love it. But my favorite 
it's got to be the rabbit. I, Graham Chapman delivers the funniest line in the movie, in my opinion, as a straight man. That rabbit's dynamite. It <laughs> destroys me. Yes. <laughs> so good. It's so. It's also at some point when the rabbit catches take claims its first victim. I can't remember who says Jesus it. Jesus Christ. Chapman. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Christ. That's how I say that now. That's how I say Jesus Christ. That's got to be the best utterance of Jesus Christ ever captured on film. It is so, it is so funny. It's so full throated. It just kills me. It's so so good. I love that it goes from zero to sixty like boom. Like, yeah, exactly. Like right? Dismissive. Like oh boys, don't chop his head off and then yeah, you're gonna nibble your bum. You know, you have to understand, dude, as, as, a, as a political scientist, as the scene with the peasant has been referred to forever. It is so densely perfect. It is. You can go line by line in that, and there's so much there that is a deconstruction. Absolutely. Of, of, of <laughs> friggin' everything. I, I just love it so much. <laughs> when, when he says, uh, when he says, I didn't know your name was Dennis. He said, well, you didn't ask. You know, it's just like there's this whole presumption of the royal, you, know, you know, he's a king because he hasn't got any, you know, I won't break the rule. He hasn't got any mud on him. But oh my god, (laughs) that is such a perfect that that scene you talked about when John Cleese was delivering uh, all the cheeses, how just fluidly and perfectly he delivers that dialogue. The dialogue that Palin is able to, I'm sorry, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's Palin, it's largely Palin, yeah, who's able to rattle off. It's just it's brilliant, (laughs) so good. Well, Chris, let's go to your moment of truth, because you actually, you and I, when we were speaking kind of behind the scenes, we very nearly came to the same moment of truth. But I, I want to see this one to you because it, it's a great one. And I love what you have to say about it. And I believe it comes from, from Life of Brian. Correct. Right? So take it away. Actually, Bill, I, I didn't end up selecting the scene we discussed. My moment of truth is actually the stoning scene, which starts with Brian's mom, played by the late, great Terry Jones donning a silly fake beard and buying some rocks and a packet of gravel to go to the stoning. They walk into, you know, an eager stoning crowd that consists entirely of women in beards ready to stone an old man for the crime of saying his wife's dinner halibut was fit for Jehovah himself. The intended victim, you know, cleverly gets the Pharisee in charge to uh, say Jehovah a bunch of times and get himself stoned. The ending scene really makes it. It it ends with the shot of two Roman soldiers. They trade a look and then one shakes his head like, not our circus. And and that's probably a pretty apt characterization, historically speaking, because the Romans didn't give much of a care about what traditions their vassals held as long as they followed Roman law. But this scene, it's a crotch punch to the concept of of blasphemy. It doesn't even acknowledge blasphemy as a legitimate concern that anyone could possibly have. In both the Hebrew and Christian traditions, that's Ten Commandments stuff, what what they're they're doing. Pretty bright line to not cross. And they just keep kicking it, that, that poor dead horse, over and over. And that unrelenting, absurd irreverence is, for me, the best thing about Monty Python. The scene is, it's not only blasphemous in the literal sense, it's asking questions about why religious rules can seem so irrelevant and about the desire to see other people punished that we can see in today's world can go along with religion. And, And to boot, it comes right after Brian and his mom are coming from the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most important moments in Christianity. I mean, Jesus preached against the Pharisees, for one thing. The, the, the guy that we will shortly see killed and he this is where he said turn the other cheek and love thy neighbor as thyself i mean the sermon on the mount's a big deal it's long they actually show the beginning of it with jesus and it just pans back to the back of the crowd we have a fist fight and all the participants of it are crucified at the end there are two moments in this movie that you could maybe that you could call respectful in any way the first one is when the Magi find the right barn. Mary and Joseph are shown with actual halos, and they're surrounded by golden light. I mean, Jesus is treated as holy. The only joke there is that the Magi had just taken their gifts back from Brian's mom, right? So <laughs> yeah. so it's really good satire, I suppose you'd say. It yeah, offers yeah. the real thing and treats it with respect and then offers something that's 
just the result of someone going to the wrong house, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> as, as, yeah. as an option. The irreverence is staggering. The second moment of reverence, exploring the Romans' respect for grammar, or uh, or maybe it's just that they're exploring the recollections of British public school students who, like most of the Pythons themselves, had once been at the mercy of Latin teachers. The Roman centurion, played by John Cleese, forces Brian to write Romans go home with proper grammar, which he instructs him in a hundred times. And Brian, of course, covers the entire wall. Brilliant political statement. <laughs> the, so good. It's so good. I mean, the, the movie ends by uniting its, its lampooning of, of leftist political activism and religion in a finale where everybody in Brian's life, plus a troop of Judeans and the equivalent of brown face and samurai armor on a suicide mission, just refused to pull Brian off the cross. Anybody could have done it. Nobody cared. <laughs> and nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody learned the, the lesson that either Jesus or Brian was trying to teach them. <laughs> yeah. they, they failed completely. And I love it. I mean, the one indictment. It, it's great. Yeah. I adore this movie a lot. And there are a couple of things about it that really sort of, sort of stem from some of the things you brought up. First of all, just that notion of irreverence. I mean, to your point, anybody who's listening to this podcast and somehow hasn't seen this movie, just let it be known. It's a pretty blasphemous movie, kind of, sort of, but not really. Because the things that are truly worthy of reverence, it treats reverently. And this thing is not so much making fun of, of the story of Jesus, it's making fun of pretty much the entire planet that somehow wasn't able to absorb a fairly simple message of love thy brother, turn the other cheek, be a good person. <laughs> you know, like some, Somewhere very shortly after that message came out, everybody splintered and figured out some way to misinterpret the message. And, and it's making fun of that quite a lot. And the notion of closed-mindedness and the dangers of blind faith. Brian's acknowledged as the Messiah. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. In this world, I think we may have a different future to look forward to. My favorite scene in the movie, which is after... Brian has his night of carnal bliss with Judith. Um, uh, and he opens up the shutter to get some wind. And you know, there he is, and there's a massive crowd waiting for him. And we get this full frontal nudity shot of Graham Chapman. He's like, ah! <laughs> it's just, it's, it's just this, it just starts this cascade of deeply humiliating moments where all of a sudden he went from feeling like a king on the morning after, and who hasn't? He is made to feel like completely exposed in front of all these people. He doesn't want following them. Judith completely just skates out on him. And then what, is, what does his mom call him? A very naughty boy. <laughs> and that, that classic, you know, Terry Jones screech. His humiliation knows no depths. It knows no end. And yet all that crowd can do is venerate him all the more. He's realizing he's got a double whammy. He's not only being humiliated by these people, he's also dealing with the, the secondary problem of that no matter what he does, these people are not going to stop following him. And that this train has left the station and he is powerless, even if he's shown completely starkers being further dressed down by his mom in public, that will not stop these people from claiming him to be something that he's not. And he knows just how screwed he really is. And He, he is Paul Mwadib in that moment. Yeah, 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 yeah he really is. <laughs> It's not, it's not what he wants, you know? And I just love the fact that Graham Chapman is completely without a stitch in that scene. He didn't need to be, right? They just threw him out there. And it's, it's part of like the self-effacing nature of British comedians. It's almost like if you haven't shown your ass in comedy, the Brits will not take you seriously. Like there's just this deep tradition of just, not just humiliating yourself, but often involving some form of you know, self-nudity. And Graham Chapman was like all in. <laughs> it's like, wow, man, okay, well done. Courage to you. It's fascinating. Yeah, we talked about how blasphemous on its face, the film is. And Python uh, members got into a lot of hot water with the, the church hierarchy over the film. And at times, they, but they would defend it. They defended it as not blasphemous. They said, it's not blasphemous. We are actually trying to get at the core message, which you alluded to, which is you know, the golden rule and love thy, love thy neighbor and all that sort of stuff. By lampooning the goofier aspects of organized religion, we're trying to boil it down to its, its core components. And there's a wonderful interview at one point where you have a bishop sitting in it. I don't remember whose show it is, but there's like a Dick Cavett type sitting there with, yeah. and I think it's Cleese and Palin. Um, that are on the couch with this vicar or this bishop or whoever it is. And the guy is not having it. This clergyman is going off on the pythons. And I think it's pale on that issue is a really wonderful uh, encapsulation of what they were trying to accomplish. It's like, look, Christ wanted us to laugh. And here we are laughing. And But at the same time, we're drawing some very real satire about where the church has gone wrong. And that's not blasphemous. It's really, it's really interesting. It's a fantastic piece of television, actually, to watch now. Because they're funny, 
but they're quite gentle. They're very much so. They're very, yes, they're, they're exactly. Gentle is the right word for it or, or very respectful. My understanding is that the idea from this movie came from a stock answer they had after the Holy Grail. Like, what are you going to do next? And Eric Idle had, it was something like Jesus Christ, lust for glory or something along those lines. It was like this weird stock answer he kept throwing out. And he did it so many times, they started asking themselves, well, wait a minute, what if there's something to that? You know, and and, and started and produced this complete Mount Everest of comedy. It's just so fantastic. It's really kind of wonderful that a story that so clearly touches upon things like blasphemy, blind faith, and abuse of power, and creates a piece of comedy that's so powerful that the very people who need to see it the most are the ones who are instantly offended by it, and probably got offended without actually seeing it, which we've seen time and time again, you know? And, and that just underscores the veracity of what they're talking about here, that the movie is as funny as it is, it is as serious as it is, it's, and it matters as much as it actually matters. I think it's also worth just noting uh, while we're doing an encomium, that the movie was only funded by George Harrison getting a bunch of people to pay for it. Like, I think members of Pink Floyd and maybe Mick Jagger, all kinds of celebrities. Like celebrity and, crowdfunding before the internet, yeah. <laughs> how cool is that? Yeah, they were just all like, yeah, screw the man. <laughs> that sounds funny. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We've gone through the sketch comedy, the early sketch comedy. We've gone through Holy Grail gone through life of brian so i'm going to take us to my moment of truth which comes from what is for me basically their last real movie which is meaning of life which which is not their strongest of works to be honest it, it really really isn't but for me probably my strongest python moment comes from this movie and that's got to be our completely unforgettable dinner date with mr creosote the mr creosote scene largely rescues that movie for me like the best monty python scenes it's like under three minutes long but it feels like an hour <laughs> And it involves this guy, this mammoth, mammoth glutton of a man in Mr. Creosote as he kind of moves Weeble-like into a fine French restaurant. And before he even orders a thing, he just projectile vomits into a bucket on the floor. Like it's just a cannon of puke comes blasting out of him. And probably Terry Jones's finest hour, actually, as Mr. Creosote. And John Cleese as the maitre d'. And he, he just keeps blasting everything around him. The, the, the menu comes down. He hits it and just goes ricocheting off and lands on his own shoulder. He hits the table. The cleaning woman cleaning the floor next to him he just turns over and just keeps housing her, like hosing her again and again. And she just has this in there. Like, <laughs> right down her collar. The, right down her <laughs> collar. And she's scrubbing and she's like, boom, boom, just getting just nailed repeatedly. He just will not stop working on her, right? It's just so disgusting. It's, it is the most vomitous scene I think ever filled it's just it's just astonishing it's easily one of the most disgusting spectacles i've ever witnessed and the only thing that keeps me from joining the sickened patrons in that restaurant who eventually begin puking themselves is the climax of the scene where where creosote after having ordered the entire menu right i'll have the lot of it he orders the whole menu and they they break down what he ordered and it is like the richest fare you'd ever imagine i mean it's like it's just any one of those is too much for a normal creosote is essentially like oil right he, like it's like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly so he he eats several million calories worth of food consumes like about 30 assorted gallons of wine liquor and beer and then at the very end of course john cleese has to order creosote an after dinner mint and creosote's like no i'm full and he insists like no no without thin mr creosote all right put it on my tongue at this point creosote is leaning back his whole he just looks like a melted man <laughs> He's just completely covered in vomit and bile and pieces of food. At one point, he's chewing what appears to be a whole pineapple. Like he's just, it, he's just completely this the the very picture of the deadly sin of gluttony, you know. And it's like way out thin. He puts on his tongue and he and he swallows it. And you hear this like rumbling, like an earthquake. And they're like, oh no! Everybody just takes cover, and Creosote just explodes. He literally explodes and showers the whole room with just big ropes of viscera and organs and all that. All that's left is Creosote sitting there with his massive cavernous rib cage and his dangling heart beating from it. And and at that point, that's when other people behind him finally start puking. And then the maitre d' emerges out of the, out of the side. And this is like one of the rare segments that actually has a punchline to it. And Cleese shows up and he goes, <laughs> he goes, your check? And he gets Creosote his check, right? To pay for the whole thing. And it's just... It's just such a fantastic scene. It's a, it's a scene that's so gross that Quentin Tarantino has actually cited as one of the only scenes he has a hard time getting through. I mean, it's really, if you have an easily triggered gag reflex, you should not watch this movie. I mean, it's astonishing how, how sickening it can really be. But you know, what makes 
this scene so funny to me. And I do, I mean, I laugh so hard just at the, at the grossness of it, which just kills me. But beyond all that, what makes it super funny isn't Creosote himself, who's just this monstrosity of a man. He kind of embodies the deadly sin of gluttony and makes you glad that that's the sin he's embodying. Like if he was wrath or lust, it would have been a totally different kind of movie. Yes, it's funny. You see him talking. He's just, he's just shaped so weird. and He's eating all the, the horrible body functions he does. The funny thing about it is watching the maitre d', he just has this superhuman composure the entire time. He absolutely refuses to break his script, right? The maitre d' is like, I'll be feeling better. Oh, better get me a bucket. I'm going to throw up. And he has the guy bring over a bucket so he can puke in the bucket at this like five-star restaurant, right? He's running his hand across the menu to, to wipe the fountain of gore off of it, the fountain of puke, whatever. The entire time, he's still just like acting as if nothing is going wrong. The customer is always right. This is a fine establishment. They will serve their greatest patron, even though he is showering the room in vomit. There's a great satire to that as well. And it just, it kind of skewers the fake order we impose upon ourselves once we have enough money to forget that we are simple base creatures, right? And wealth begets manners and manners forgives, manners can forgive all kinds of excess, but especially the ones we shouldn't forgive. It really gets to it, to the heart of it. And I think it's just, it's just one of my favorite scenes I've ever filmed. It's also a, a statement about class warfare because, I mean, there's no doubt that the Mater D does it on purpose. I mean, he backs away after using that mint, like, he's just pulled a pin on a grenade. Give it a fuse. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, exactly. And, 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 I mean, so, so that suggests that all of that compliance of his is, it's on purpose and, and it, it's knowing and sinister. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And, but, but justified. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely justified. Well, it, it's sort of the notion of eat the rich, but sort of turn on its own head. It's like, let the rich eat themselves and they'll just, they'll self-destruct and yeah, they, they do it all the time, which is, which is so great. You know, you, you mentioned Bill that the meaning of life might be the weakest of the, of the films, but when I was a kid, it was the one we watched over and over and over again for a variety of reasons. And there are some scenes certainly that are among my favorite Python scenes. As much as I want to die by being chased by couples <laughs> roller skating girls, the one that always has stuck out to me is, and it's a line I use all the time, is in the death segment when they have the dinner party and the Reaper shows up and collects everybody, right? Everybody, uh, come with me, everybody come with me. And, and I love that, you know, you want to talk about class, they argue with him, right? Like, they're like, oh, you are, you're being rude showing up at my house. But then when they're leaving and they're walking, somebody finally says, like, well, why are we dead? And he says, well, it was the moose. And then they keep walking. And one guy says, I, did, I didn't have moose. But then he keeps going anyway. It's the most <laughs> British thing I've ever seen in my entire life. This guy is such a follower. Like, stay in queue no matter what. Like, this guy, he says, I didn't even... He's, I'm not dead, but we're all going. So, I, so to this day, when we're all going along with a plan that I'm not a big fan of, I always I, when it goes bad, I say I didn't even eat the moose. So but you know, it, that skit actually contains one of the few times when I can recall that Python's taking a real clear shot at Americans in general. Because the one, one the dinner party, you know, guess he, uh, he's protesting and, and death is like, you Americans, you're all like, you're always, I just want to know and let me tell you something. Well, you're dead now, so shut up. Like the Americans are so ready to argue, like they're the exact opposite. They can't accept that death has come for them. They've got to argue with them. Death is like, oh my God, can he be like the guy who gets in line even though he's not dead yet, please? It's just this great moment. I just, I just love it. And it, it kind of made me wish that they kind of took a few more broadsides in American culture because they had a pretty good perception of it as well. The, the only other one that I would bring up for this would be when, I think it's Cleese is teaching sex ed at the boys' school. And he brings his own wife in and he's like, now, hey, listen, everybody pay attention. I'm doing this for your benefit. This isn't for us. This is for you. You pay attention. You're going to have to go, you know, uh, play soccer and play football against the Masters. And there's a kid in the class who throws like a paper airplane or something like during the middle of the session. Like even, even then, there's still some kid who just can't be bothered. He's like, hey, and he's like chewing the kid out while he's on top of his wife in the classroom. Yeah. It's like, it's just. Why can't you pay attention? I'm, you think I'm enjoying this? <laughs> exactly. Oh. exactly. It's, it's so good. My, my favorite scene is from that segment too. Gosh, you are so very big. Michael Palin during his prayer. Oh, God, it just slays me. Talk about a musical number. Oh, oh, you know, every is true. I, yeah, yeah, that. Oh God, that's, you, know, you know that that song reminds that's me. That's like a that's like Broadway. That's yeah. like a theatrical. The Pythons, like Hollywood. There was like a stealth virtuosity to the Pythons when it came to music. Eric Idle, all of it. Yeah, and we don't think of them as being musical yes. comedians, but holy moly, that was their that was like the superpower that kept them reserve. And when you saw it come out, it's just it was really really funny stuff. You, you know, it, I think it's interesting, Bill, that the one of their films that had 
a real ending, you know, a recognizable ending, was the one that ended in a song. Left for, for Brian. Brian, yes. Sung by Eric Idle. <laughs> well, speaking of endings, I think we're at the end of this. So let me, uh, before we wrap up, drop a final thought on everybody. Monty Python's popularity is such that even asteroids have been named after each of its members. The term spam as a deluge of unwanted content is derived from the classic spam, spam, spam sketch. And the term Python-esque has become so widely accepted as a general descriptor of the Python's comedic approach that it has been officially included in the Oxford English Dictionary. And Terry Jones, who in some ways was the heart and soul of this group, or at least a driving force to get this unique blend of comedic minds to work together, he had said that their aim was to create something so new and original that it couldn't be easily described. And when he saw Python-esque entered into OED, he said it made him feel like that they had failed in that regard. You know, I think this is an area where we could possibly take issue with the Pythons, because to be fair to them, their sense of humor was so far outside anyone's comedic context that it was impossible to ignore, let alone to not enjoy. And yet it deals in such modern universalities, such as distrust and authority and disdain for bureaucracy, that it created a pigeonhole where none existed before, just by dint of its own power. If there can be an irony to the Pythons, it's that they created comedy to tear down institutions but did it so well that they became an institution themselves. You know, comedy sometimes creates unexpected and, and even unwelcome results, but the Pythons earning way more love than they ever expected surely isn't one of them. And if they still feel like they get too much acclaim, then at least they can take solace in the fact that they never managed to write a joke so good that it could in fact kill you. So, so there's always that. Chris, Joe, Tom, thanks so much for dropping in today. It was great to have you on the show. Thanks to everyone listening, and we'll see you again here on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.